From FX on Hulu comes Mrs. America, the highly anticipated drama that explores the dawn of the 1970s women's rights movement. Tune in as we explore the story of the Equal Rights Amendment's ratification and the unexpected backlash led by Phyllis Schlafly that forever shifted the political landscape. Starring an award-winning cast, including Kate Blanchett, Sarah Paulson, Uzo Aduba, and Elizabeth Banks. Mrs. America. New episodes Wednesdays, exclusively on FX on Hulu. Visit Hulu.com for more. Very, very soon, the can's going to run out of road. We got to open this economy. If we don't, it's going to collapse. And if the U.S. economy collapses, the world economy collapses. And trying to, to, uh, to burn down the village to save it is foolish. Yes, we shut down, but the shutdown did not stop the spread of the virus. The shutdown slowed the spread of the virus at enormous cost, but it still spread. When we end the shutdown, the virus is going to spread faster. That's just a fact. And the American people understand that. Republican Senator John Kennedy of hard hit Louisiana. And states should reopen despite acknowledging that would accelerate the spread of this deadly virus. It's just one of the dumbest things I've actually heard him say. And he said so many stupid things over the past year. It's hard to count. I mean, he's he's from a state that, again, everybody went out to Mardi Gras, went out to Mardi Gras and spread the coronavirus across the country. It's just like Florida having spring break. And you can actually see where that spring break spread hit a lot of people uh, uh, east of the Mississippi River. But, you know, there's something I don't understand. You have people uh, like Senator Kennedy and a lot of other Trump supporters uh, and a lot of Americans, rightly, were were so offended uh, and and shocked and upset like I was when Mm -hmm. 3,000 Americans died at the hands of Islam, Islamic uh, terrorism on 9-11. We're at 30,000. Right? So now we're at 10 times that because of Chinese, the communist Chinese government lying and their incompetence, the American president lying and his incompetence. Continued I mean, and, and, and it can, the incompetence continues. The World Health Organization's incompetence. Yes, I will say that. Donald Trump may be the wrong person to criticize the WHO, but others in Congress should and attach strings to the funding. We shouldn't cut the funding for the WHO. But, you know, Willie, I I don't even this is a guy. I think he went to Oxford. He's a big John Kerry supporter. Um, A man, a man about town, obviously, very, very erudite or however they say that in Oxford. But (laughs) he says he says in his corn pone made up accent that, uh, that yeah, we, we, we closed it down. People still died. He knows that without the social distancing, he knows without the lockdowns, he knows this. He may be playing stupid on TV. Uh, he may be acting like he's dumb as dishwater on TV, but he knows that without the social distancing, instead of. 30,000 people dead right now. It'd probably be 300,000 people dead right now. He also has to know that if we reopen the government too quickly without the testing, 
if we reopen the economy without widespread testing, a lot more people are going to die. And here, here it comes. Here's punchline, John Kennedy. I like how you talk like that, Mr. Oxford. You, you, you know, he actually talks like like Sherlock Holmes when he's behind closed doors in his house. And he has an <laughs> eye patch and a, a top hat and, and smokes a pipe. But he knows, Willie, that it's the businesses, the small business owners that you and I know and Mika knows so well that own family businesses and own small restaurants and small bars and, and, and small shops, they're the ones who are going to be hurt the most if we reopen the businesses and then they have to shut down again because Donald Trump still refuses to act in a strong manner on testing. It's just stupid and short-sighted. And he knows it. Senator Kennedy knows everything you just said. And the reason we know he knows it is because that's effectively what he said in that interview last night. He said, we've got to open up the economy. A bunch of people are going to get sick. But that's a trade-off I'm willing to make. And by the way, that's not exactly a fringe view among many Republicans. The president effectively is saying that. He wants to open the economy, knowing all the costs that come with that. You had an Indiana congressman putting it two days ago this way. It's the lesser of two evils. A lot of older people may die. But younger people will have their businesses open. The economy can get restarted. This is not worth the trade-off. We need to open the economy again. So what Senator Kennedy said last night opened a lot of eyes, but it's not exactly something we haven't heard all the way from the White House and that we're going to hear again today as the president announces that he's going to tell some governors of some states that he has deemed based on some data he says he sees He's going to tell them they can open for business. And as Senator Kennedy said, a lot of people will get sick because of it. Well, you know, the thing is, Willie, uh, there was somebody who claims to be a, quote, newsman who's anything but who took great offense at me several weeks ago saying that um, the Republican Party claims to be the party of life if you're talking about the unborn. But if you're the born... My God, watch out. If, if, if you're especially in the greatest generation, if you're a World War II veteran in your 90s, if you're a Vietnam veteran in your 60s, if you're 70s, in Donald Trump or John Kennedy's if you, generation. If you're, a, if you're a Korean War veteran in your 70s or 80s, uh, well, the hell with you. Because I could, you're right, there's a growing list of Republican senators, Republican congressmen and women, White House officials in the Republican Party that are saying, yeah, sure, senior citizens are going to die, but what the hell? We really got to get Wall Street moving again. We really got to get Boeing Corporation moving again. We really got to get these Fortune 500 companies moving again. And let's bring in Jonathan Lemire and Caddy. Uh, Caddy, they're not even being subtle about it. Like, they're, they're not even being subtle. They're basically saying, yes, Older people are going to die. The greatest generation, a lot of people in the greatest generation are going to die. You know, these same people who tear up on, you know, June the 6th, every June the 6th about what happened at Normandy. But now, because corporate profits for Boeing and other Fortune 500 companies are, are going down and the stock market's struggling, they're saying, well, yeah, yeah, they're going to die. Yeah, older people. We know older people are going to die. The greatest generation. A lot of people are going to die there. A lot of people are going to die that are, are, are Korean War vets and Vietnam vets. But you know what? 
we got we got to get we got to get Wall Street uh, purring again. It's really it's an astonishing argument from the quote party of life. Yeah, I, mean, I suspect what they're really saying is that your older people are going to die, but I'm going to do all I can to protect my parents and my grandparents, um, and, and I'll leave that problem with you. I would recommend for anyone who has a few minutes this morning to go and watch Angela Merkel's press conference on how she handles the coronavirus in her press briefings uh, that she gave yesterday, where she lays out very clearly why we cannot afford to do exactly what they are suggesting, which is just let the older people die. It's not just about the people who might die. It's about the pressure on the healthcare system that will come if we open up the economy now. And a society, a democracy without a robust healthcare system under the kind of pressure it's been under for the last month is not a viable society. And she lays it out very clearly. We open up now and one person infects uh, two people. Our healthcare system is shot by the time we get to September. They infect one and a half people. It's shot by the time we get to November. I mean, so it's an incredibly compelling argument that this is not just about the humanity that we as a society do not choose to let our old people die when we could save them in order to rescue the stock market and millionaires' investments, but it's also about saving a vital part of our society, which is the healthcare system. It just can't withstand well, us yeah. reopening right now. No, it can't. And there is going to be, Mika, a second wave that's coming in the fall that we really need to prepare for right now. But, you know, it's very interesting. Caddy talked about how they say they're saying, oh, yeah, we'll it happens to older people. But other older people will take care of our own. Well, isn't it interesting, Mika, we're seeing a lot of senior citizens who are in the United States Senate saying, ah, the hell with it. Let old people die. Let's open up the economy. A lot of talk radio senior citizens are saying the hell with it. Let's open up the economy. A lot of people on pro-Trump uh, cable news shows are saying the same thing. Uh, a lot of older people in the White House are saying it. But what they're saying is, yeah, what they're saying is, you know, we're 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 rich enough to take care of ourselves right. in the White House. We're rich enough on talk radio we're to take protected. care of ourselves. We're rich enough in the United States Senate or cloistered enough in the United States Senate to take care of ourselves. So you're not going to see us going out eating at restaurants. You're not going to see us going out with the economy started back up. But we're going to push the president and other people and governors to put political <clears throat> pressure on to get other people out there, and yes, they're going to die, but what can you do? They're not in the 1%. That's their attitude, Mika. There's no other way to put it. I, and again, I don't even mention their names because they're so disgusting. But, but people that used to serve in other administrations, people who used to have good reputations, people who were on talk radio, people who were on cable news, like they're 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 telling other old people, yeah, you're going to have to die. Get over it. We got to get Wall Street started again. But you're not going to see them have family reunions in a barn in central Louisiana, like inviting a thousand strange people to just kind of rummage in there. You know why? Because they know that they don't want their family members to die. They're going to stay cloistered behind the gates of their homes. Yeah. They're going to stay cloistered in the United States Senate. They're going to stay cloistered where they stay cloistered and say, again, their argument is, make no mistake of it, and it's a growing argument in Donald Trump's Republican Party, yes, yeah, senior citizens are going to die, but 
You know what? The bottom line's more important. Well, for those who are actually uh, trying to you know, push this country through this and trying to make decisions, here's the problem. And it's a really, really big problem. You heard Dr. Burke saying yesterday at the briefing, the only thing of value, by the way, that was revealed during the briefing, you can't go out. Please don't go out. It's too soon. It's not possible. And here's the reason why. As the president talks about opening up the country, about reopening businesses, we have 30,000 dead and more dying. And we have a big problem. Testing is not even near where it needs to be. It's not even weeks. It's not even months to where it needs to be. And here's their biggest problem. Asymptomatic carriers. This virus will be out there. And if people don't listen to Dr. Burks and they listen to the president, there will be more deaths. So that reopening comes with more deaths because right now the only thing that has done anything to control the virus is being closed. And nobody wants to be closed. And, nobody yeah. wants their children out of school. Nobody no, wants what? their businesses dying. We all agree we would like to see the economy opening. But because you didn't prepare, because everything was botched from day one, there isn't the testing that is needed right now. There isn't the, 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 the work that needed to be done and the president will not invoke the DPA and get it nationalized and streamlined and happening as quickly as possible with mass coordination from the government. So, yes, you're stuck. You open the country. You open at your own political peril because those asymptomatic carriers will come back to bite everybody, including the, pres the president and the politicians who make that decision. And, and Jonathan Lemire, everybody. Oh, my God. Everybody keeps going back to testing, testing, testing. Even the CEOs and the people that Donald Trump claimed were on his Reopening America panel, which a lot of people didn't even know that the president was going to use their names. They're frustrated. The CEOs are frustrated, according to The Wall Street Journal, according to The Washington Post, because because they say they can't do this without more robust testing, without more widespread testing. You got to test. You got to trace. By the way, you can't just wave a magic wand as a CEO and say, hey, everybody come back to work. That, that's not going to do it because workers who have maybe parents or grandparents at home, workers who may have children with underlying health conditions are not going they can't, they're not going to be as cavalier about the life and death of their loved ones as Donald Trump and John Kennedy and talk radio hosts and Stephen Moore and Larry Kudlow are. The president has been fixated on this May 1st date. Now, again, let's stress, it will be the governors themselves who actually lift stay-at-home orders, who are the ones who are going to reopen the economies in their states. But obviously, if the president announces, as we expect today, guidelines for the 50 states, uh, that will give some gover governors feeling the cover they need to do so. Uh, we're expecting it. It'll be in a couple different categories. The president was expected to say that some states could go back 
back May 1st, some even a little sooner. Others that are still hotspots uh, would need to go later. Uh, but there's sort of recommendations uh, that not everyone is, of course, expected to follow. And we are anticipating some real tension between the White House and some state houses across the country. But you're right, Joe. The president held uh, has convened his second council. We see that the task force uh, headed by the vice president and, and Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks are on there and they appear before the media most days. And now he's, a, he's set together this economic council, the one that's meant to, to help steer him reopen the country. You're right. When he announced some names of some of the participants from the Rose Garden the other day, that was news to some of those who were involved, who were learning for the first time when the president said their names aloud in front of the news cameras. Uh, and then yesterday, he convened a series of conference calls, rather unwieldy calls, with dozens and dozens, if not more than 100 people on them, and while there was, of course, as, as we reported, we talked to some of the people involved, uh, while there was, of course, the usual praise of the president's handling of the things, which we, we tend to hear in, from cabinet meetings as well, there was also real concern and exactly what you said, Joe, real pushback from some of these real leaders of industry, some of these real titans of American capitalism who say, of course, we want to go back to work. But we can't yet. And we're not going to be able to do so until there is widespread testing. We need to be able to guarantee our workers' safeties. We need to make sure they feel comfortable coming back to work, that they're not going to spread it, this disease, among their own family members. And they stressed also for the need of more personal protective gear, saying that in certain industries, people are not going to feel safe to be able to come to work every day. And that they urged the president to tap the brakes and to make sure this was really thought through before he really pushes to reopen the economy again. But it does seem that he's ready to go, at least with some parts of it. And yeah, those CEOs, Joe, are saying to the president, it's great to open up the economy, but if consumers don't feel comfortable and safe coming into the economy, going into restaurants, going back into their offices, there's no point in opening the economy. And as he talks about these targeted areas where there hasn't been as much coronavirus or sparsely populated, I think the state of South Dakota gives us a good window into what could happen. Uh, the governor there didn't put into effect a stay-at-home order, and they've had an outbreak at one pork processing plant, a bunch of cases yeah. in that state, less than a million people, population there. But Still, Governor Nome there in that state hasn't put that in place. And she says the rules that govern our bigger cities like Sioux Falls shouldn't apply to the smaller towns, <clears throat> excuse me, in the state. And the mayors of those small towns are saying, OK, but the closest hospital is 30 miles away. If everybody in my town gets sick, that hospital is overwhelmed. So this is not just a New York City problem. And that is what you hear from public health officials, is that if you relax all the standards, if you relax all the guidelines, even in a place with a sparse population, you're setting yourself up for a problem. Uh, amid the global pandemic and record unemployment, President Trump is now threatening to shut down Congress. We showed you the president's claims on Monday that he has total authority over the states. A quick reminder of that. What provision in the Constitution gives the president the power to open or close state economies? Uh, and then numerous uh, provisions will give you a legal brief if you want. It's been states that have closed, ordered schools closed. It's been states that have ordered businesses like restaurants. That's because I let that happen. Because I would have preferred that. I let that happen. But if I wanted to, I could have closed it up. The president of the United States has the authority to do what the president has the authority to do, which is very powerful. The president of the United States calls the shots. They can't do anything without the approval of the president of the United States. When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total.
And that's the way it's got to be. Your authority is total. total. You said when someone is president of the United States, their authority is total. That is not true. Who, who okay. You know what we're going to do? We're going to write up papers on this. It's not going to be necessary because the governors need us one way or the other, because ultimately it comes with the federal government. That being said, we're getting along very well with the governors, and I feel very certain that uh, there won't be a problem. Yeah, please, governor, go ahead. Has any governor agreed that you have the authority to decide when their state I haven't asked governor? anybody. Because I don't, you know why? Because I don't have to. Go ahead, please. But who told you the president has the total authority? Enough. Please. The, the, so, the, author- I mean, I just, I, the authority of the president is total. Mm, total. Yeah. I mean, I, I, where, yeah. where, other than Liz Cheney, and a few other Republicans, where? They're following Where are the, him. quote, constitutionalists? Um, and they'll have to live with that. And their children and grandchildren will look at them in history as those who followed him into a very bad direction, uh, pushed him. Where, where he was speaking like a totalitarian leader, and they said nothing about it. Yep. Yesterday, the president tried to flex that authoritarian phone, impulse again, this time wanting to force Congress into a recess so he can use recess appointments to get his stalled nominees into senior positions and on the federal bench without Senate approval. The Constitution allows a president to adjourn Congress if House and Senate leaders can't agree on whether to adjourn. But that's not the case here. And no president has ever used that power. We have a tremendous number of people that have to come into government, and now more so than ever before because of the virus and the problem. Uh, We have to do it, and we have to do whatever we have to do. Earlier last month, you were in the office talking about now is not the time for partisanship. How will that act lower the partisanship in this town, and could it potentially hinder your ability to get something done on coronavirus? Well, it it is. Look, it's been a very partisan government for a long period of time, not just this administration. You can go back into the last two administrations. You've seen a lot of partisanship. But I have a very strong power. I'd rather not use that power. But we have way over 100 people that we very badly need in this administration that should have been approved a long time ago. And one of them is the head of Voice of America. If you look at what they're doing and what they're saying, about our country. It's a disgrace, the people that are running that. We have somebody that's really good, really talented, and that loves our country. And I want to get these people approved. At least. Timeline for that, though. If, if Congress doesn't act well, we'll by when, do you Look, have a they date? Know. I, they've been warned, and they're being warned right now. If they don't approve it, then we're going to go this route. And we'll probably be challenged in court, and we'll see who wins. The more he talks like that during these briefings, Joe, where Dr. Burks is sitting there freezing instead of working on the coronavirus, you wonder what exactly is getting done in there that is constructive. He uses the questions to do that or to flout his lies. He never answers the questions during these briefings. Never answers. And when he knows where a question's going that would require him to tell an uncomfortable truth, he just cuts off the reporter and runs over them. I don't, there's no news value to these press conferences. They're not really press conferences. Yesterday, 
was a partisan political rally. Nothing with more this, than a partisan. With Dr. Burke sitting right there, wasting her time. Wasting. Wasting hours of her yeah, time. Wasting so much time. Hey, let's bring in another guy whose time was wasted yesterday, sitting through it, NBC News <laughs> correspondent, Hans Nichols. He wouldn't see it that way. But, uh, yes, you know, I'm, but anyway, he you just saw him questioning the president. Uh, Hans, Hans I, I just, so the irony is so thick that this president is complaining about vacancies in his administration when he has purposefully had more acting secretaries than any president in our lifetime and more vacancies by design, like Jared and, and the president at the beginning of this administration decided they were going to have as many vacancies as possible because they wanted to run, have all the power reside inside the White House. So why did the president decide yesterday to start complaining about vacancies, which he's really been a champion of for three and a half years? Apparently, the Voice of America, something tipped him off, a broadcast on the Voice of America that the president was unhappy with. He didn't think it was appropriately flattering. I mean, there there are, I mean, you you always want to be careful when you're talking proximate causes with President Donald Trump because you don't know who spun him up if there's something else going on there. But he went out of his way at several points to attack the Voice of America. He has a new director that he wants to put in and try, try to steer that in a different direction. You know, he talked about the undersecretary of agriculture for food safety. But what's interesting to me about this is that he chose this time to really escalate the temperature in Washington, D.C. He still needs Congress. Pelosi and Mnuchin are still working out, uh, trying to work out a deal on plussing up the small business loans, right? That's at 250 or they're going to need another 250 billion. So at the same time, the president is all but threatening to go to war with Congress. They still have they need Congress for so many different things. I also think it's notable that when you look at President Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell, there hasn't been any daylight on so many issues, particularly with judges. There is going to be a yawning gap when you look at what McConnell's statement was on this idea of having the presidency, a different power, a different branch of government, adjourn Congress. There are clearly going to be differences there. So in a lot of ways, while this could be a fight between the president and Pelosi, which, I mean, it's hard to have a fight if you're not actually talking. The bigger issue here could be between the president and uh, the Senate majority leader that he has been up to this point walking in lockstep in. Guys. So, Hans, help us out here. I know when the president talked about reopening by Easter, we immediately said uh, that, you know, he was he was just sending a message to business that, you know, he was pushing back on his health advisors. He knew that uh, we couldn't reopen our economy fully by Easter. Do we have the same thing happening here with the May 1st state with testing still as as pathetic as it is, if you look at it at a per citizen uh, a ratio? Right. I wouldn't be so surprised, right? I actually think the president is this time more serious about it because they think the combination of diagnostic testing and surveillance testing, sort of monitoring what's happening, could be sufficient to open up parts of the country uh, on a regional basis. So in the past, it seems like he's been sort of winking at the markets, trying to juice the stock market or send a signal to at least those Americans that do want to get back to work, which right, let's let's be honest about this. There is a big debate in the country about when to open up. And in the oh, yeah. past, at least in, uh, at least in with the Easter, it seemed as though the president was nodding. This seems more serious. 
again, though, the testing, I mean, you guys are talking about sort of the overall confidence issue. The power of the presidency is limited and the rhetorical powers are limited. And even if the president says open up, there's no guarantee. And this is what he heard, as Jonathan was mentioning uh, on the call with business leaders. This is what he heard, is that there might not be the public confidence. And I don't want to do any sports metaphors here, in part because there's no sports to watch. But confidence is a tricky thing to instill. And uh, I don't know if the president, at least for the half of the country, or more than half, we can have a debate, that doesn't really listen to him, how he's going to inspire people to let them know that it's safe to go out and resume living their lives. Guys? Well, in the, in the president's most, uh, let's just say the swing state that has been most supportive of the president in the past, a recent poll showed that 57% of Floridians don't trust the president uh, when he's talking about the coronavirus. So it is going to be hard for him to instill that confidence. Thank you yeah. so much for being with yeah, us. Yeah, great job. Uh, it's greatly appreciated. Willie, you know, we, we're going to have to reopen. We're going to have to reopen uh, this economy uh, at some point. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be May the 1st or not. But again, the question that I know uh, a lot of employees, including people who work with us, people uh, who work in our friends, small businesses, uh, they're going to want to know that when they go back to work, that they're not going to be bringing home the coronavirus, a pandemic to their parents or grandparents or loved ones. Yeah, and that's the balance that we have to strike here. And nobody is discounting the impact that this this coronavirus has had on small businesses and the cascading effects of that on families and employment. Obviously, we're going to get another bad unemployment number today. We all have friends. We all have family members, some people living in our own houses who are struggling through this with small businesses right now, trying to save employees, trying to keep them paid. No one I mean, no one is discounting how important it is to get people back to work. But if you get people back to work too soon, it's been said a million times, people get sick again, you got to close your businesses again. It backfires on you. So the president has to walk that line. But I suspect he's made up his mind. He's going to have new guidelines for certain states that we'll hear today. And he's going to tell them, all right, guys. I think the coast is clear and we'll see what the effect mm. that has on those states and those towns, those communities and those businesses. Yeah. By the way, we have a Morning Joe special report coming up in our 8 a.m. hour. We'll be focusing on two key themes. The nation's leading health experts enter your questions about the pandemic. And we're drilling down on how the decisions our leaders make today will affect the country long into the future. Our special guests will include Joe and Jill Biden, Pete Buttigieg and retired General Stanley McChrystal and Lady Gaga talking about mental health. And as we go to break, we started the block with Republican John Kennedy. We'll end it with Democrat John Kennedy. I stand before you tonight as a proud, deplorable. Unlike some of the folks in Washington, D.C., I'm talking about the cultured, cosmopolitan, goat's milk latte drinking, avocado toast eating insiders elite. I'm a Democrat. I support Senator Kerry. Hey, everyone. It's Tremaine Lee. MSNBC correspondent and host of the new podcast, Into America. In our latest episode, we go to Nashville, Seattle, and all over the internet to see just how creative some people are getting to keep the music going. What happens when gigs are canceled, clubs are closed, and school concerts are called off? 
when people listen to music, they're feeling the emotions and the closeness of somebody else, even if they can't be in the same space as them. Coronavirus is keeping us home, but as you'll hear, it can't stop the music. The importance of music is to keep our spirits up. We're in this situation and, in my opinion, may as well make the best of it. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcast. The WHO pushed China's misinformation about the virus, even praising China for its so-called transparency. I don't think so. The President of the United States said China has been working very hard to contain yep. the coronavirus. The United States greatly appreciates their efforts and transparency. We have a tremendous relationship with China. I think they're doing a very professional job. And they're working very, very hard in the sense that they have everything under control. And I think President Xi is extremely capable. And he's working very hard on this. It's a tremendous problem. Some people don't seem to trust the data coming out of China. Are you worried about that? Look, I know this. President Xi loves the people of China, and he's doing a, a very good job with a very, very tough situation. The WHO willingly took China's assurances to face value, and they took it just at face value. Had the WHO done its job to call out China's lack of transparency, the outbreak could have been contained at its source. It's almost like the people that were writing that script for Donald Trump to read, and may I add, read badly. Um, it's almost as if they were flown in on a rocket ship from Mars <laughs> and never really heard what Donald Trump was saying about China in January, February, and March. Because what Donald Trump was saying about China, <clears throat> he praised the transparency. He said the United States, people of the United States, thank China for the transparency and their great work. You heard his words. Yeah. That's on January 24th. Thank you, President Xi. And then in February, he said they had it under control. And when asked if he trusted the data coming out of China, he said, yes, President Xi. What does he say? President Xi is doing a great job. He loves yeah. the people. of China. On and on and on. So, again, Donald Trump acts as if video doesn't exist and as if video is not going to be played every time he likes, he'd be much better. I, I, Donald, Mr. President, please listen. You do a much better job, not humiliating yourself at these press conferences in the afternoons. Instead, keeping your head down, getting to work, being quiet, Go radio silent. It's not going to happen. Obsess, hold on, obsess on getting the testing done. Not just for the summer. Yeah. But for the second wave that is coming in the fall, because it's coming in the fall. And when it comes in the fall, we have to be able to do the sort of things we should be doing right now. But we aren't because you failed before. Testing, tracing, uh, be, being able to treat those uh, that, that have the virus being able to isolate those. We're learning more and more every day. And it, it does really seem that if you look at a Boston study of the homeless, it really does seem the asymptomatic spread of the coronavirus. I mean, it spreads like wildfire. That's why it's so important. You can't just test the people who are going into the hospital sick because 80% of people most likely, 80% are asymptomatic. 
Yeah. So we need testing. That was, by the way, that montage was courtesy of John yes. Heilman and the folks at Very the good. Recount. We're going to have more from them coming up so, in the show. Uh, joining us now, professor of history at Tulane University, Walter Isaacson, and best-selling author, professor of history at Rice University, and a presidential historian, Douglas Brinkley. His book, American Moonshot. John F. Kennedy and the Great Space Race is out now in paper. Uh, so anyway, you, uh, you know, um, Walter, feel free if you want to talk about Donald Trump, you can talk about Donald Trump. I'd rather talk about something else with you because you've studied. Uh, you've completely studied the lives of people like Albert Einstein, Steve Jobs. I mean, uh, the great thinkers of our times, the great scientists of our times. One of the few silver linings of, of, of this horrible pandemic is the fact that scientists are coming together in a way they've never come together before, working toward one goal. What, what can you tell us about that? They're moving into the breach because, as you've said over and over again correctly, the massive failure of testing in this country has caused us enormous problems and will continue to if we try to reopen without having testing facilities. And so academic universities, you know, at the Broad Institute of Harvard, MIT, down here at my university at Tulane, and especially at Berkeley now, uh, the people who are running the biology departments, who were studying gene editing, have converted their labs, like Jennifer Doudner you have on the screen right now, converting their laboratories and saying, we're just going to step into the breach. Now, you think that would be easy, but the government hasn't even made it easy. They don't have clear reporting requirements. They don't have ways of gathering the data properly. The emergency authorization use in order to do a lab was held up for such a long time. But now we're seeing out of the Broad Institute, Tulane, the University of Washington started this, and now Berkeley, they're doing it. And they're going to also have to get to next generation tests where you can just do it in a go to a drugstore, just like you would a pregnancy test, have a strip of paper. Mm -hmm. The strip, the paper will tell you in five to 10 minutes. Have you been exposed? Have you got the virus? So, Douglas Brinkley, I'm just wondering if there's any moment in history that would call for even more than this, the opposite of what this president is doing. It, it feels like his decisions could be fatal for Americans. His lack of preparation could be fatal for Americans. The question is, will it be fatal politically for him? Well, look, you know, we were, Walter was just talking about science. You know, in 1960, when Jack Kennedy ran for president and won, scientists were Time Magazine's persons of the year. They had a 75 percent approval rating, and everybody believed the scientists were going to have medical miracles. DNA had been discovered in the 1950s uh, and new types of antibiotics. By the end of the 60s and early 70s, scientists lost some of their luster. And with Donald Trump, we've had a president who has been denouncing scientific experts since day one. Uh, total climate denial, uh, saying that 99 percent of the scientists are wrong about climate change, treating it as if it's some kind of hoax. So this is a president that's been having a war against science his entire administration. He gutted CDC. He got rid of the pandemic experts near him in the White House. So he was caught deeply flat. 
flat-footed. And so you have, if you go back in history, what's a president that—this is the worst president you can imagine for a pandemic. Um, what presidents dealt with it well? Well, Bill Clinton in the 1990s had read Richard Preston's novels, one, The Cobra Effect, and the other, The Hot Zone. And he went and met with Preston and pulled together a team of pandemic experts and built up the U.S. stockpile in the 90s. Really, those the cupboard, the bear that Donald Trump keeps referring to was not bare when Bill Clinton was president because he had taken the idea of bioterror attack and a pandemic very seriously. I think in the future now, uh, a crisis like this builds an opportunity. We need to have a brand new uh, public works health project. We're going to need a secretary of, um, you know, pandemics and bioterror. We're going to need to continue to work in innovative new ways with the universities, Fortune 500 companies and the government. And one good thing that's come out of this is all of the all of the um, governors, uh, by and large, have been doing a pretty good job. Hey, Doug, it's Willie. Your new book, American Moonshot, uh, uses a term moonshot, which was at that time a literal moonshot and since has become sort of a metaphor shorthand for a big project where the country marshals its resources and its minds and its power to do something big. I think when coronavirus hit, a lot of Americans were perhaps surprised, definitely disappointed that the country wasn't better prepared. It seems that the moonshot of the moment is to get testing, as Walter says, into the country. And there doesn't seem to be from the president's point of view, a national movement to do that. It's left to the governors. It's left, for example, to New York City is now making its own tests, outsourcing to companies in Indiana. Why hasn't the government in this moment been able to better marshal its energy for a moonshot to fix this problem? Because President Trump is in re-election mode, and he likes to do uh, uh, lead by chaos and division, and he can't get that out of his system. There's an opportunity here to really rally the American people, when, and the moonshot being not just the vaccine, which might come in a year or a year and a half, not just the testing, but to really get the American public concerned about how we can rebuild a health infrastructure. He doesn't like that because he had put all of his chips on building a wall with Mexico. Uh, he's stuck on that being his big one-off project. When Kennedy did the Apollo program, that was his sort of one-off, something that you got, would get known for, or Theodore Roosevelt with conservation. Trump is all about really getting reelected right now. So, uh, alas, the, the, you know, what our world needs is a earth shot. Uh, we have been treating the world shabbily, and pandemics will occur, hurricanes, fires. Uh, you can't just burn the Australian forest and have Brazil burn and California burn every year without paying health costs. So we've got to kind of reorient ourselves now, not about going to the moon or Mars, but about thinking about Earth. And the lead now is, is how can we contain future pandemics once we get over this, which it's probably not going to be really over till 2021. Caddy Kay. Uh, Walter, I'm interested in what you're saying about the science there when it comes to testing, because the other part of us getting out of this and getting out of lockdown is going to be contact tracing. And some estimates suggest that we're going to need something like 300,000 contact tracers, people who are trained. And the moment there are none, and there doesn't seem to be a federal program to get them up and ramping. I think there's a nonprofit in Massachusetts that's hiring 500 of them. We need 300,000. So could science step in there? We've seen apps in Singapore. We've seen apps in South Korea play some kind of role. 
But there may be more of a civil liberties concern here in the United States than in some other countries. Are you hearing anything from the scientists that you're speaking to about what they could do about the contact tracing to accelerate that? Absolutely. Uh, you need the contact tracing and you need the data that comes from that. And we're a country, as you just said, Caddy, that gets a little queasy when people are tracing us and keeping our data. Somehow or another, we don't quite worry when Google and Facebook or Apple is tracing us and knows where we are. But the notion that that data would be used the way it's used in Singapore, the way it's used in China, sort of causes us to get a bit queasy. I would think you need people you can trust. Obviously, the federal government right now hasn't earned trust, nor for that matter has Facebook, probably. But it would be good if people like Francis Collins, who runs the National Institutes of Health, and Anthony Fauci, who works with them out there, came up with a system to say, we're going to have very standardized tests. We're going to have very standardized reporting procedures. We're going to have consistent types and rates of testing across the country. Then we are going to have contact tracks, you know, tracking that uses your phone, that uses your location data, and you can opt out of it if you really want. But to be part of this national effort, you have to say, yes, I'm going to allow both my phone and my Fitbits and all the things that collect data on me to know where I've been, who I've been in contact with. And unless you want to opt out, it becomes part of a way to trace things. I think that's going to be hard for the American people, but you need the people who engender trust to say, we will do this in a way that protects your anonymity except for when it comes to these health issues. I mean, Walter, how funny is it that Google, Apple, you name it, uh, Facebook, everybody follows. Everybody, <clears throat> I, 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 people yeah. will sign up for an app TikTok. I, I mean, but isn't that like run by the Chinese government? I'm not exactly yeah. sure who runs TikTok. China. China. Yeah. But but people are like, oh, sure. Yes, I'll agree to that. I'm going to do a dance now. Yeah. What, whatever it takes to get the app. I'll let I'll let them follow us. I'll we tell go. you, though. But, but people will be freaked out if we're using it to actually stop the spread of a pandemic. Hey, guys, Willie Geist here this week on the Sunday Sit Down podcast. Music superstar Cheryl Crow. Her journey from a small town in Missouri to the top of the music world. Get the podcast now for free wherever you download yours. Well, you know, I teach a course here at Tulane called The Digital Revolution from Ada to Zuckerberg. It ends with Mark Zuckerberg and the social media. And maybe it's our generation, Joe, if you don't mind me throwing myself in with you, that have that sense of privacy and kicking things out a bit. My students aren't particularly worried that Amazon and Google know where they are, and they're not particularly f fixated on privacy. When I say, do you want to turn off your location data? Would you mind that all the crime cameras in New Orleans now have facial recognition and can know when you go into bars? Or would you, you know, mind having uh, your travel and your phone records and which cell phone towers you go to, all that trace? There's a little bit less of a worry about that in the generation of people in college. They say, hey, privacy, you're kidding. Get over it. It doesn't exist. And here's the big thing. I think coronavirus may further erode, for better or for worse, in my mind, probably worse, but other people better, 
uh, erode this notion that we're all entitled to absolute anonymity when we catch viruses and wander around. Walter Isaacson, thank you so much. Douglas Brinkley, thank you as well. And check out his book, American Moonshot, John F. Kennedy and the Great Space Race, out in paperback now. Up next, it's not the headline struggling uh, businesses want to read right now. Aid runs dry as program fails to reach hardest hit. NBC's Stephanie Rule explains what is going on with the government's plan next on Morning Joe. The Paycheck Protection Program is on set to exhaust its 350 billion dollar funding from Congress this morning. Democrats and Republicans both want to add another 250 billion to that emergency coronavirus funding, but have yet to come to agreement on whether to add restrictions to the loans or not. Joining us now, NBC News senior business correspondent and an MSNBC anchor, Stephanie Rule. And Joe, this is a big issue right now because of the potential for abuse. Stephanie, it's a huge issue. And and you've talked to us about this, but I've got friends in Pensacola, Florida. I've got friends in South Florida. They have businesses that depend on a lot of people coming in this time of year. Uh, People that have restaurants around spring training uh, facilities, and they're not getting any money. They're not getting help. And yet you told us stories like if somebody has a yacht, owns a yacht and decides that they're going to charter a yacht uh, five, six, seven times a year, those people can get money. Small business owners are having trouble getting money themselves. This sounds like 2008 all over again, where the rich get richer and the poor get crushed. Well, Joe, that's the exact risk here. And remember in 2008, when things were put in place, they were put in place with bad intentions. After the subprime crisis, when rescues came in and suddenly we said, hold on a second, the banks, it all worked out for them in the end, but people still lost their homes. Do you remember how angry people were? They were angry saying, how come none of these bankers went to jail? None of the bankers went to jail because technically they didn't break the law. And so right here we are again in an emergency situation where we need to help people. And if we don't take a closer look at the language, what is going to happen and what is happening is that the savviest will win and the neediest will lose. So you're giving a really important and good example because the way this program works, yes, they're trying to get another $250 billion, but I promise you there's going to be in the trillions when it comes to demand. Because if you're a restaurant in Pensacola, just like you said, you're completely shut down right now. You have zero income. And to get this loan, you basically get to get two and a half times payroll for the next two months, but you've got to bring everybody back on. So you're going to hire everybody back and you don't know, you might not be open again in two and a half months. It's a huge risk. And that small restaurant, they don't have a great relationship with the bank. So they weren't able to get in early. Now let's go to the reverse. This is perfectly suited for a private country club, a law firm, an investment firm, or just like you said, somebody who literally owns a yacht or a private plane. And let's walk through that example because it's important to show people. If I owned a yacht or a plane and said three times a year, I'm going to charter it out. Well, chances are I've lost those charters because people aren't traveling, but I've got a captain and a crew. So my business manager would say, hey, Stephanie, you can apply for PPP because technically, Joe, 
I am eligible. I am going to lose that income. But you and I both know that person that owns a plane or a yacht or a private club, they don't need that. And this money is going to run out. And if Congress doesn't look at this right now and say, let's see who this money is going to, then you and I are going to be sitting in these exact seats six months from now doing a financial autopsy going, hold on a second. These people took the money. All we'll be able to do is publicly shame them. But that nail salon and that restaurant, they'll be long out of business. This is an opportunity for Congress to really look at where this is money going. We really have to put strings uh, attached to this to make sure that this isn't 2008 all over again. Stephanie Rule, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to see we're going to see you uh, right after our special this morning, but also would love for you to come back tomorrow and talk about this more because it is such an important issue. Thank you so much. Um, Jonathan Lemire, um, let's follow up on what Stephanie said. Uh, you have retailers, uh, you know, small business owners uh, who have restaurants, whether it's restaurants, nail salons, whether it's a builder, uh, whether it's a realtor, uh, they're getting crushed right now. Uh, and yet uh, there, there are examples like Stephanie said, where it, sometimes it's getting to people who aren't the, the most disadvantaged. Uh, it's getting to people who could get by without the funding. Well, a lot of people that have small businesses who are in pain still tell me they're not able to get support. There's no question, Joe, that has become a rather widespread and sad story across the nation right now. These small businesses that, that, have, that have tried to keep going, that have tried to keep their workers employed, that have tried, say, as a restaurant to transform into a takeout business, to, to, to remain a part of the community, uh, which they've been in for so long and, and are, are, in, are so beloved uh, and are really struggling and have, have, have a hard time receiving the necessary federal support. And, and we're still at the very beginning of the of, of this crisis financially. The government is going to have to come up with far more money to try to stabilize this economy, even after, even if the president is able to, you know, quote, reopen things as of May 1st. You know, things have certainly cooled in the talks of a phase four. Uh, there's been some no discussions with Speaker Pelosi. There's been real dispute over infrastructure. And yesterday, the president, one of the president's primary concerns, whether or not his name appeared on the checks that Americans were receiving, which according to reporting, has even delayed uh, their delivery uh, to those that need the most. All right. We're going to get more on the political angle uh, of this when NBC's Casey Hunt joins us with the latest uh, from Capitol Hill. Plus, we're about an hour away from our Morning Joe special report, Isolation Nation, in which we speak live with the apparent Democratic nominee for president, Joe Biden, and Dr. Jill Biden joins also, us as well. Lady Gaga, Stan McChrystal, Pete Buttigieg. Uh, Pete Buttigieg. Morning Joe is coming right back. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? I'll be talking with computational biologist Carl Bergstrom about what we do and don't know about the coronavirus. Once these things get out there, and this is kind of sort of a key aspect of misinformation and disinformation, is that once they're out there, they really take off and they spread. And so Jonathan Swift uh, said several hundred years ago that falsehood flies and truth comes limping after. And, and that's what happens on the internet, of course. So there's a more recent version of this, which is known as uh, Brandolini's bullshit asymmetry principle. And it says the amount of work that it takes to clean up bullshit 
is an order of magnitude larger than the amount of work it takes to create it. So we definitely see that sort of thing happening with all kinds of conspiracy theories, including this one around the virus. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe.